Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I thank our witnesses for being here, and it's great to be back with all of you. Um, we've had a little time off here. I want to thank our witnesses for testifying today. Both of you have had long careers working to defend our country against terrorists, and today is a great opportunity for us to learn from your experiences and hear your insights about the future. As the Mosul operation continues and the Raqqa campaign begins, ISIS could soon lose the most important territory it has held. As ISIS changes from an organization intent on retaining territory to one focused more on inspiring and directing violence and spreading radical ideology, the next administration is going to face new and perhaps even more a more diverse set of problems. We have already seen ISIS and other groups employ multiple different tactics from organized external networks directing coordinated attacks in Europe to huge suicide bombings in the Arab world to inspired attacks by lone wolves in the United States like those that occurred in my hometown of Chattanooga, Orlando, San Bernardino, and this week at Ohio State University. I hope you can help us think about the evolving nature of terrorist organizations and what tools the United States needs most to counter them. ISIS and Al-Qaeda have proved to be resilient in the face of extreme pressures, reinventing themselves and taking advantage of conflicts around the globe to root into local populations. With the world now focused on ISIS in Iraq and Syria, what can we do to best prepare for the next iteration of ISIS or Al-Qaeda? How can we recognize where radical ideology is taking root and ways to best combat it? And finally, both of you have served in different administrations that created new structures and positions to combat terrorism. I think we could appreciate your views on what can be done going forward to better coordinate the whole of government approach to combating terrorism. Again, I want to thank you both for being here, and I want to turn to our distinguished ranking member, my friend Ben Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, uh, first, um, it's good to be back in, with hearings. Uh, it's been an interesting uh, uh, recess that we've had, and it's uh, we're certainly very um, uh, looking forward to this hearing and the work of this committee. Uh, this is a very important hearing, so I thank you for scheduling it. It's very timely uh, as we deal with an incoming new administration and uh, the incredibly important subject of countering uh, terrorism. Uh, you've made uh, many points that I totally agree with. We need to build on the success that we have seen in combating ISIL. Uh, Ramadi has been liberated. Mosul is in the process of being liberated. Raga is just a matter of time before uh, the uh, headquarters of ISIL in Syria falls. ISIL itself has said its days of the caliphate is limited. Uh, and I think that reflects the point that you raise that uh, it, there's more to this than just territory, and we have to be prepared for the continued vulnerabilities of particularly open and free democratic societies. What has been particularly encouraging, though, in the region is that we have seen, as these uh, areas are being reclaimed, that it's local security forces that are maintaining the security, which is absolutely essential. And there's a recognition by the governance that they need to represent all the people. Now, that's a continuing process, but that is very much part of the overall strategy to counter uh, terrorism. But as you pointed out, terrorist groups are rather flexible. They figure out different ways to cause mischief. They use their ideology 
to recruit, and they, uh, we see uh, also uh, uh, self-taught terrorists. When ISIL has at last been uprooted in Iraq and Syria, it will still seek to spread its barbaric ideology everywhere it can and inspire the desperate, the deluded, the delusional to strike out at, uh, at the innocents in their country. Military action alone uh, is very important. Military action is very important, especially our special forces can and, and have been extremely effective in dealing with uh, foreign terrorist plans and generating intelligence that's very important uh, to our game plan. However, it's only one tool that must be used. Defense in depth through domestic police and investigative forces is also paramount. In cooperation with each other and the counterparts in other countries, especially within Europe, which has been the target of so many of the ISIL and Al-Qaeda attacks, uh, as we learn so painfully, bureaucratic barriers to the exchange and anal uh, analysis of information about potential terrorists and their plans must be torn down. We need to work together. We need to work with all of the tools that are available in all the countries that are in our coalition to fight terrorism, and we must figure out more effective ways uh, in order to accomplish that. We must give at least equal attention and resources to countering the social media appeal, the ideology, the lies, and all the different contributing uh, conditions that provide fertile ground for groups like ISIL to grow and flourish. Mr. Chairman, we have spent trillions of dollars uh, in our fight against terrorists. Most of it, over 90%, goes to our, our Department of Defense, as it's needed. And I don't disagree with our support of our, our men and women who are defending our, our, our country. Uh, we need greater resources in diplomacy and development assistance, the so-called soft power, the building of democratic institutions. Uh, and I think it's our committee's responsibility to be there in order to understand that. So I very much appreciate this hearing. Uh, we must not only pursue a whole-of-government approach to counterterrorism, but a whole-of-government perspective as well. We can't do this alone. We need our coalition partners. I want to mention one last point, though, that uh, I think we've got to be very careful, though, on our language and on our actions. Uh, quite frankly, anti-Muslim promise, uh, promises uh, and, and, and concerns about instituting a Muslim ban on immigration, uh, profiling an increase of violence of Muslims, threaten to isolate the United States. To me, that's counter, I think all of us, it's counter to the strategies we need in order to fight extremists. So identifying Islam itself as a terrorist source, thinking somehow that directly attacking the religion of over 1.6 billion people will make them more willing to help us, is just fallacy. We, we need to recognize that uh, there is a global effort to stop extremists, and we have to be, the, the, what we say and what we do has a major impact on that. So, Mr. Mr. Uh, Chairman, I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Uh, I, I would like to just conclude uh, by pointing out that we have self-grown terrorists here. We have to deal with th those issues. Significant attacks are carried out here by persons motivated by racism, by homophobia, by radical political objectives, uh, and that needs also to be, to be part of our equation. So I look forward to this hearing. I look forward to working with all the members of this committee to make America safe. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate uh, appreciate those comments, and I, I might take a personal privilege here for just one moment uh, to welcome Tim Kane back. Uh, it's good to have you back here, and I know you've had a quite an adventure, and I look forward to hearing about it. Uh, and also, what, what I did on my summer vacation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
I understand you have a uh, quite a star that you've added to the committee that uh, this may be the first hearing. Is that is correct? This Jessica? Since you're uh, I'm sorry. Uh, let me, if I might, to those who don't know, we, we've been, uh, Jessica Lewis is uh, the staff director for the Democrats on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. She comes to this committee with a great deal of experience, having worked in, with Senator Menendez, having worked with Leader Reid uh, in, on intelligence issues and has a vast knowledge of the Senate uh, Farm Relations portfolio. So it's wonderful to have her uh, working as part of our team. Well, we've all uh, had a lot of interaction with her because of the role she played, and we certainly look forward to working with her here on the committee. So with that, welcome, welcome. And uh, to our witnesses, our first witness today is the Honorable Juan Zarate, Chairman and Co-Founder of the Financial Integrity Network, previously Mr. Zarate, served as the Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor for combat Combating Terrorism from 2005 to 2009. He also served as the first Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorist finan Financing and Financial Times. Our second witness today is, is the Honorable uh, Daniel Benjamin from the Dickey Center for International Understanding at Dartmouth University, Dartmouth University. Among other roles, Mr. Benjamin previously served as Ambassador-at-Large and Coordinator for Terrorism at the State Department and as Special Assistant and Director for Transnational Threats for President Bill Clinton. We thank you all for being here. You all have uh, been before this committee or been a part of it, uh, I'm sure, many times. And if you'd keep your comments to around five minutes, uh, we'd appreciate it. Your written testimony without objection will be entered into the record. We thank you for being here. If you'd start in the order of introduction, we'd appreciate it. And uh, just to let uh, Senator Cardin know in advance, I'm going to defer to you on questioning first and create uh, interjections along the way. So, Mr. Zarati. Chairman Corker, thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, Ranking Member Cardin, wonderful to see you again. Distinguished members of this uh, great Committee on Foreign Rela Relations, thank you again for the invitation and the honor to be with you today, especially today to talk about our counterterrorism strategy. Uh, let me say welcome to Senator Kane, my home senator as well. It's good to see you again, sir. Uh, I also want to say I'm honored to be here with Ambassador Dan Benjamin, uh, somebody who's served our country with great distinction in, in a number of roles over, over the course, course of years. Uh, and I've been honored to watch his work and uh, been privileged to become his friend, I hope. Um, but this is an important moment, uh, Mr. Chairman, to have this hearing. Uh, Fifteen years after 9-11, we faced a more diverse and complicated global terrorism threat with continued and quickening adaptations from group, groups like ISIS and still Al-Qaeda. And with a new administration set to take over, it's a critical moment to take stock of where we've been, some lessons learned, and certainly to start to shape a counterterrorism strategy to defeat the persistent threat of violent Islamic extremism. And Mr. Chairman, you've asked us to address a number of issues, including the nature of the metastasizing threat and what lessons have been learned uh, from the rise of ISIS and perhaps its demise. There's no doubt terrorist groups continue to learn from each other, Mr. Chairman, with demonstration effects of attacks, methodologies, and messaging echoing instantaneously around the world. These groups and their adherents adapt quickly to pressure and opportunity, leveraging elements of globalization and modern communication, uh, while exploiting seams in security along with weaknesses in governance to their full advantage. The rise and reach of ISIS has driven much of this adaptation, uh, and we've witnessed this over the past few years. 
Likewise, Al-Qaeda affiliates have continued to perpetrate terrorist attacks from West Africa to Yemen. And now Al-Qaeda is smartly rebranding itself in key conflicts and war zones, including in Syria. But there has been significant pressure on ISIS, which is good news. There's been important and increased pressure on its safe havens, physically in Iraq and in Syria. Targeting of the organization's key leadership, especially taking off the battlefield operational core leaders focused on external planning. The Treasury Department, the military, the intelligence community have increased the pressure on the ISIS war chest. In fact, ISIS's budget is significantly constricted. They've had to cut their foreign fighter salaries by 50% and suspended what are important death benefits to families of ISIS fighters killed in combat. And importantly, in demonstrating the loss of ISIS's physical space, losing its uh, so-called caliphate, we've begun to shatter the myth of ISIS victory and the allure of the caliphate that has re really been the siren song for ISIS and its global movement. So the effect of this pressure is good news, but it's certainly not the end of the story. And Mr. Chairman, as you've set out, we need to worry about what the next chapter looks like and what comes next. There are adaptations on the horizon. ISIS will certainly remain a player in the context of the Syrian civil war, especially as it continues and to the extent that they can hold some territory. If ISIS is driven out of major cities, as we hope they will be, it could continue to strike using classic terrorist tactics. If it contains and maintains its provinces and platforms, there will be an opportunity to use those platforms from West Africa to Southeast Asia to support and reinforce a new network, even if they don't have a functioning capital or control of vast swaths of territory. And even though many of the ISIS foreign fighters will die, no doubt, in defense of territory in Iraq and Syria, there is a very long and real tale to the foreign fighters themselves returned to the West, Asia, Africa, and Australia. ISIS can also survive through the influence of a digital diaspora. Uh, ISIS has already proven proven its ability to innovate the use of targeted messaging and social media for recruitment and inspiration. And there's also been, unfortunately, a powerful digital afterlife to many of the radical ideologues and operatives for ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And importantly, Al-Qaeda has taken advantage of the attention ISIS has drawn to reinvig reinvigorate its networks, including having training camps in Al-Qaeda that have come to the U.S. government's attention in recent months. And a danger in the environment, Mr. Chairman, something that this committee knows well, is the growing proxy battles in the region between Sunni and Shia forces. The danger here is that the proxy battles will no doubt grow worse, and these groups will be seen as a, a response and a defense against Iranian and Shia-backed militias and terrorist groups. Now, the demonstration effect from ISIS has been real and, Mr. Chairman, is dangerous. They've developed terrorist methodologies that have been improved over time, They've been allowed time and space to do so. They've experimented with drones, used chemical weapons, developed tunnel systems, classic things that insurgency and a terrorist group does. They've also directed different types of attacks. They've obviously directed sophisticated attacks of the types we've seen in Paris and Brussels. They've also be begun to frame attacks, uh, entrepreneurial attacks for followers and those uh, who are adherents. And finally, as we've seen in recent months, they've amplified their attempts to inspire attacks in place for fellow citizens to attack 
in the countries in which they live with the simplest means possible, including running over pedestrians. Uh, ISIS has innovated in terms of its use of media and recruitment, using targeted social media to isolate and radicalize. It's perfected the use of multiple media forms, consistency, quality across all of its products. And though not successful, the organization has developed governing structures, schools, and even court systems that, it, that has allowed it to experiment with controlling populations, imposing its rule, and embedding itself ideologically with young generations. There is also a cautionary tale, Mr. Chairman. The problems that ISIS has encountered will be a cautionary tale to other groups. Other groups will note the disillusionment of those who joined ISIS and tried to flee, the inability to keep populations satisfied or at bay, uh, and the ultimate inability to consolidate its control of territory and rule. Finally, Mr. Chairman, you asked us to reflect on key ideas or focus of our U.S. counterterrorism strategy, and I know I'm over my time. Let me be really succinct here in terms of some key principles and elements of a strategy. First, Mr. Chairman, we have to realize that the underlying ideology and appeal of these violent extremist organizations animates these terrorist movements. Uh, this is not just a threat about one particular group or one manifestation. This is an ideology that has man manifested in a variety of ways and that will continue to drive the threats from this violent extremist movement. I was recently a part of a study at CSIS led by former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta and former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair uh, that set out a new comprehensive strategy for countering violent extremism. I've included some elements of that report in my testimony. I would ask people to look at that because it lays out a new approach, new resources, uh, and new methodologies to deal with the underlying ideology. Second, Mr. Chairman, the laws of physics apply to counterterrorism. We can't forget that. We have to physically disrupt the ability of these groups to organize, control territory, to lead, and to plot. I think we've lost sight of that at times, thinking that we can push magic buttons in New York and Washington and have the problem go away. The reality is you have to dislodge these groups from their hold of territory, and that has been especially the case with ISIS. Mr. Chairman, effective and trusted partnerships are essential. We can't do this alone, obviously. And what Dan did at the State Department, what we did prior in the Bush administration to create regional alliances to deal with the emergence of these groups in places like East Africa, the Trans-Sahel, Southeast Asia, becomes essential moving forward. We can't be in all places at all times dealing with the emergence of these groups. Mr. Chairman, this is also important for this committee. Our counterterrorism strategies can't be divorced from a coherent national security and foreign policy. It's often the case that administrations say we don't want counterterrorism to be the sole driver of our foreign policy, but the reality is it suddenly becomes the priority, especially when dealing with conflict zones or crises and direct and imminent threats to the homeland. But the reality is these are complicated environments, Syria, Yemen, other conflicts where these terrorist threats emerge, and we have to have comprehensive and coherent foreign policies to address uh, the underlying issues. And finally, I want to echo something that uh, Senator Cardin said. I think words and lexicon matter quite a bit. How we define the enemy matters in terms of our strategic approach. How we talk about our allies and our approach matters to uh, creating a sense of unity uh, with our coalition. Um, our language should reinforce our alliances, strengthen our messages and ideals, and certainly undercut the appeal of our enemy's vision of the world. Mr. Chairman, I know I've taken a lot of time here, but 
I think certainly with the right strategy, focus, resources, institutions we've put in place, we can handle uh, this problem, but we have to be focused and be imaginative in terms of where the manifestations of this movement will emerge. Uh, and we can't be afraid to imagine the worst because we have to get ahead of the curve because these are actors that are innovative, smart, and constantly using time, space, and resources to their advantage. Thank you. Mr. Ambassador. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin. Uh, distinguished, oh, excuse me. All right. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee, thank you very much for the opportunity to appear today. Thank you for holding a hearing on this vitally important subject on counterterrorism strategy, and thank you for pairing me with my old friend and colleague, uh, Juan Zarate, with whose uh, uh, testimony I'm in, I'm in broad agreement. Um, as we approach the beginning of a new administration, as we watch events unfold in the Middle East and the continuing damage done by being done to ISIS, key questions about our future plans and orientation are on the table. And let me begin by noting that over the past several years, the United States has made significant progress against the major jihadist terrorist groups in the extraordinarily complicated and roiled world that was created by the chaos in post-Saddam Iraq and the Arab uprisings uh, of 2011 and after. And nevertheless, uh, we face a range of threats that is increasingly diverse and more widely distributed geographically. The continuing appeal of the jihadist narrative and the adaptive nature of these groups pose an enduring challenge to our national security. Uh, at home, uh, well, let me just say briefly that we saw in the period 2011 through 2014 a dramatic rise in global terrorism. Uh, at home, the San Bernardino and Orlando attacks more than doubled the number of jihadist-related deaths in the United States since the attacks of 9-11. Uh, the total, uh, I would add, comes to 94, and that number, judged by any reasonable standard, is low and a testament to the extraordinary measures that the nation has taken since 2001 in law enforcement, intelligence, military operations, and migration. It also reflects the high level of integration of the American Muslim communities who have remained largely immune to the call of extreme and ex extremism. Excuse me. Indeed, if we consider that there have been upwards of 225,000 homicides in the nation in this period, uh, the American populace, I would argue, has been remarkably well protected from this form of violence, even if the public discussion does not reflect this level of security. And I say that recognizing full well that terrorist attacks carry a unique and a peculiar horror, and that their toll must also be reckoned in terms of public confidence in our institutions and perceptions of our global standing. Having said all that, ISIS today is on the, is on the defensive. It's lost some 55% of the territory inhabited territory captured in Iraq in 2014. It remains dangerous by virtue of the sanctuaries that it, it uh, has, that where it can recruit, train, and execute external attacks, as we've seen in Europe, and to incite uh, assailants around the world. Recent attacks in Europe further demonstrate that ISIS now has the intent and capability to direct and execute sophisticated attacks far from its territory. Um, these attacks have increased in complexity and pace and are clearly intended to maximize casualties. In the United States, the threat of ISIS is somewhat different um, and on a smaller scale. Um, the group to date has not had command and control of any of the attacks that have uh, occurred here. Lone actors or insular groups, often self-directed, uh, pose the most serious threat. 
and homegrown violent extremists will likely continue gravitating to simpler plots, often involving firearms, that do not require advanced skills outside training or communication with others. Terrorism has its own political economy, and for ISIS to retain its mantle of leadership in the jihadist movement, it must achieve success that offset and distract from its military setbacks. Many of those efforts are likely to be in Iraq and Syria since the local forces' ability to hold and police reconquered territory will be limited. Continuing sectarian polarization in the region will mean that however unattractive they may find ISIS, many Sunnis will support it as a counter to the Shia-dominated government in Baghdad and to Shia militias. Major population centers, including Baghdad and other cities, are likely to see considerable terrorist violence. ISIS understands as well that another means to maintain its status means to maintain its status is to strike out of area, especially in Europe and, if possible, North America. And as it loses its grips, grip on lands held since 2014, the operational tempo could well increase. Now, as I said before, uh, to date we have no evidence of uh, command and control in an ISIS attack in the United States, and I think that we should be mindful of the reason why because contrary to the situation that uh, exists in Europe uh, and contrary to some of the rhetoric that we heard in the recent campaign, we do not have a dysfunctional immigration system and we do know who is coming into our country. Uh, we have a highly sophisticated system with many layers. Its procedures have been steadily expanded and refined uh, to the point where it bears little resemblance to the system whose vulnerabilities were exposed on 9-11. It is, of course, a human system, and therefore there will be another failure at some point. But since 9-11, it's important to underscore that um, every attack, uh, every casualty called it, caused in this country was caused by someone who was uh, either a citizen or a green card holder. We should, I must say, and this is an echo of Senator Cardin and of what uh, Juan has just said, we should expect that danger to grow if the tone and the approach of the new administration resemble in any way the tone and the approach of the campaign. The US public had already been subjected to an enormous amount of fear mongering while ISIS was on the rise in 2014. Threats to cut off all Muslim immigration, restore waterboarding and other forms of torture, create a national registry of Muslims, and kill the families of terrorists have all contributed to a profound unsettling of American Muslim communities. This will undermine our security in far reaching ways, I fear. Uh, it is important to re uh, remember that while intelligence and law enforcement do a great deal to prevent attack, it is also because of the American Muslim community, which has been largely immune to extremism, that the number of victims is so low. Uh, not only are they immune to extremism, but they are also the source of a large percentage of the law enforcement and intelligence tips that prevent plots from uh, occurring. Now, I, I know that I recognize that time is short, and I do just want to get to a few of the uh, other issues that you have asked about. Um, but I do want to just say that, uh, first of all, uh, we should have no illusions about our ability to eliminate the jihadist threat, which I think is a persistent problem, particularly in policy debates. Uh, given the historic dimensions of the changes in the Middle East, I'm afraid that we will be seeing terrorist violence and jihadist violence for decades to come. Um, it is nonetheless a threat that I believe that we can defend against and manage if we remain clear-eyed and do not make the mistake of overreaction that the jihadis hope we will. 
on the military side, I think that we have innovated and developed really an extraordinary toolkit uh, that will enable us to continue reducing terrorist and terrorist slash insurgent groups uh, in a very effective way. And this is uh, really the refinement of the drone programs together with special operations uh, uh, operations uh, in theater um, that have uh, been so effective at intelligence gathering. Uh, and by the way, enabling local forces and targeting, targeting high-value operatives and leaders. And as a way of avoiding putting large numbers of forces into a combat role, this approach has been successful uh, and uh, has uh, whatever, although it requires a great deal of patience while the intelligence base is built, uh, that um, those costs in terms of time are more than offset by the lack of radicalization that ensues from large deployments. We need to do more capacity building. Uh, the Obama administration pursued this uh, vigorously in uh, its second term, uh, and I think that, to put it bluntly, we must have capable partners, especially in the developing world. We must have them on the military side, but we must also have them on the civilian side, and that has been, I think, woefully underfunded. Um, we need to have partners who have uh, courts that can uh, convict terrorists, police that can catch them, prisons that can incarcerate them, and they need to be treated in uh, a way that is uh, in, in um, that observes the rule of law, because as we know, uh, radicalization is a direct response of repression. We need to strengthen our uh, relationships, uh, and I agree with Juan on this one entirely. That includes uh, working with our Sunni partners to try to move them from uh, an excessive uh, focus on sectarian issues to uh, curbing extremism, and we need to work with our uh, European partners uh, who need to do a better job on intelligence and law enforcement. We need to prevent radicalization and recruitment at home, and I will end just by saying here that I think that we need to rebalance our efforts away from counter-messaging, which I think has not shown uh, the kind of yield, the kind of uh, uh, effects that we had hoped for, and towards more direct intervention in communities uh, where uh, uh, teachers, healthcare providers, uh, religious leaders and the like can intervene when they see that uh, individuals are at risk of radicalization. There's much more to talk about, but I think that's a good place to stop. I want to thank you again for the invitation. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you both for those uh, very expansive uh, uh, opening comments. And uh, uh, with that, I'll turn to uh, distinguished ranking member Ben Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, first I want to thank both our witnesses. I thought you'd given a very comprehensive outline on our strategies moving forward to counter uh, terrorism. Uh, Mr. Benjamin, I couldn't agree with you more about the importance and the realities of the relationships with the Muslim community has paid off major benefits as far as safety in our community. Maryland has a significant Muslim community. I have worked a long time on the relationship with local police, with our intelligence um, communities, and that relationship has kept, I think, our state safer, and uh, it is uh, everyone's mutual benefit. If that trust doesn't exist uh, because there's a view that by helping government you're hurting your own people, uh, then uh, that uh, really jeopardizes everyone's safety. So I appreciate that point. Uh, Mr. Zarati, I. Uh, thank you for mentioning the, uh, the CSIS uh, study, Turning Point. Uh, 
it pointed out very clearly that we have to avoid reactions that play into violent extremist hands. It quoted a former al-Qaeda recruiter as saying, radicals and recruiters love Islamophobia. It drives recruitment. The report further advises that it's important for governments to avoid rhetoric and responses that estrange Muslim communities. So I, I just really want to underscore that point that we really play into making our country more vulnerable when we use that type of rhetoric uh, that estranges Muslims around the world. I do want to ask both of you a question, though, about what we should be doing here in this committee. As I pointed out in my opening statements, most of our resources to fight terrorism is on the defense side, the DOD side. This committee is responsible on the State Department and on the so-called soft powers. Uh, we know the importance of good governance. We've seen that play out directly in Iraq, that if you don't have a comprehensive government that all communities respect, you're not going to be able to maintain peace. We have resources in our State Department through diplomacy, through development assistance. Where do you see the most effective use of those resources? Where could we be doing better? What, what would you recommend should be our priorities in fighting terrorism? Using uh, your own ter terminology, we need a comprehensive foreign policy. How would you have us use those tools more effectively to counter terrorism? Uh, if I may, Senator, um, I believe that uh, um, you know it is very important to continue with the ca capacity building in the military field, in the intelligence field, but I think that we have lagged on the civilian side. Um, and um, we need to do um, a better job uh, in terms, as I referred to in my, uh, in my testimony, of uh, training the high-end police who deal with counterterrorism. Remember, in most of these countries, uh, terrorism, as it is in ours, domestically, is a police issue, not a military issue. And uh, we need to uh, strengthen their ability um, to uh, track terrorists, to collect intelligence on them, but also to um, uh, try them, uh, incarcerate them, and also to do the, the work countering violent extremism, uh, which is so vital to tamping down uh, radicalization. Uh, the State Department, I think, does a good job uh, to the extent um, uh, that it is engaged in these areas, but I think it's important to note that capacity building efforts have grown exponentially in every other part of the government, and I would say um, perhaps uh, or arithmetically uh, in... Um, Mr. Zarate, I'm going to give you a chance to respond, yeah. but I, I, I just want to underscore that point. If you look at our development assistance, most of those funds go into health programs or food programs, which are very important. I'm for those programs. I don't want to see those programs marginalized. But the money we spend on capacity building is not very great. And we, we look at where the seeds are already there for growing terrorists, such as Africa, where we could be doing so much more in capacity building, and yet our investments in capacity building in Africa is very, very small. Mr. Zarate? Senator, I, I can be quick because I agree with uh, everything Dan has said. I think there's three categories really for, for you to consider. I think there's the partner capacity issue that, that Dan has mentioned, and that's everything from law and order to the ability to govern. 
Um, there are the questions of the aftermath of these terrorist-held territories. What happens in Mosul after ISIS is dislodged? We've seen this problem in Ramadi and Fallujah. How is it rebuilt? What does governance look like? How is trust rebuilt with the, the citizenry? We're not going to do that, obviously. The Iraqis have to do it, but we have to be present, and we have to have the ability to, to impact that. Um, and finally, a, a bigger question here, and it emerged in the context of the Arab Spring where there was a lot of, I think, Pollyannish analysis that things would go uh, incredibly well, sort of the arc of history would, would bend in our direction in terms of the Arab Spring. There was a lot of discussion at the time whether or not we needed to consider a Marshall Plan-like uh, structure for dealing with what was inevitably, inevitably going to be dislocations, lack of governance, and frankly, pockets and vacuums that terrorists and jihadis w were going to fill. Uh, many of us were warning that this was probably going to happen. Uh, and I think those three areas are three conceptual areas where this committee can focus. One final point. There's, a, there's room for private sector engagement in a way that we haven't done creatively enough. Um, in the report on countering violent extremism, we lay out some very interesting ideas for how to leverage the private sector, not just from a media perspective, but in terms of actually organizing against the manifestations of the ideology as it emerges uh, in places like Bangladesh, Nigeria, and around the world. The <laughs> private sector has a key role to play, and there are a number of programs that need to be scaled up and supported, and I think that's something for this committee to look at. Thank you. I thank both of you again for your testimony. Thank you, Senator Perdue. Thank you. <clears throat> I, want, I want to follow the money uh, briefly. It just seems to me that looking at this, we're at war, and sometimes we don't approach it that way. Um, and when you see, I believe our homeland's been invaded. Uh, when you see the rise of, of homegrown terrorists, uh, the lone wolf, and so forth, who have been radicalized through social media and the Internet, I believe our borders have been breached. Um, I, I, I think that uh, we're at war, and I think we've, we've got to face up to that reality. But I want to talk about the financing of this. Mr. Zarati, to start with, um, we saw ISIS grow very radically uh, early um, and, and rapidly through the use of oil resources, uh, the selling antiquities. Uh, and in other parts of the world, we see uh, the illicit trade of wildlife and so forth. Um, what can we do? I mean, you, you were the first undersecretary that really attacked this, um, I believe. Um, and, and what I'd like to get, to get at is what are the loopholes? What are the ways that we can track the money and, and actually fight them through the financial uh, uh, ways that we can, and also limit their use of established financial systems throughout the world? Senator, great question. Um, and they, they both link, actually, because I think w one of the things that we were slow to realize is that in cutting off terrorist funding, which is essential to cutting off the lifeline for these groups to give life to their programs to have global reach, um, you have to actually treat it like a war. Uh, and especially when these groups are holding territory, holding resources, have uh, populations, and even financial institutions at their command, we actually have to find ways of physically dislodging them. And that's what's been so effective over the, over the last year plus. We've uh, dislodged them from their control of territory, oil, oil resources, hit their mobile refineries. We've even begun to hit them physically, their cash centers. We've seen these videos of the, of the U.S. military blowing up these cash centers and the, and the cash flying up in the air. Um, so the f first thing we have to recognize is that when these groups and more and more of these groups are figuring out that they can control localities and local economies, when they control those economies, you actually have to physically dislodge them. There's, there isn't much you can do from afar to affect what they can do on the ground. And, and we've done that relatively well over the last year. The second thing that can be done, uh, Senator, is to find where those choke points are in the system 
where their economy hits the regional or even the global economy. So in the context of ISIS, the question was, who are the brokers with whom they're doing business? How are they actually moving their money? How are they trading in antiquities? How are they selling their oil? Um, where are the money service businesses that they're operating? What money service businesses or banks are they using in Mosul or even Raqqa or Sirte to actually move their money? And so finding what those choke points look like is essential. And frankly, intelligence is key to that. And I think we were a bit blind to how this emerged. We've gotten much better. Have we focused the resources needed to, to really do what you're saying there? I think we have now. I think uh, with our departure in 2011, in all honesty, I think we blinded ourselves to what was emerging. We had seen with the terrorist financing tracking uh, cell that we'd established in Iraq how al-Qaeda was using some of the same mechanisms that uh, ISIS eventually used. Um, we dismantled that uh, capability, uh, and we've been playing catch-up ever since. And so I think it's important to realize that the long pole intent here is intelligence and information to understand where these groups, be they the groups and militias using wildlife trafficking or drug trafficking or oil smuggling, whatever it is, how they're actually running the economy, how they're linking to the formal financial system. Once we know that, we have a set of tools that can begin to shut that down and begin to constrict their ability to raise and move money. Thank you. Mr. Ambassador, I have a question about Europe. How do we coordinate with our allies in Europe? Um, we see a lot of activity over there. We know that Brussels is a, is a haven for um, terrorist activity and so forth, and it's being exported to this country through Europe. What, uh, General Breedlove even said that Putin is involved with the rat uh, radicalization and, and the uh, weaponization of the refugee problem in Eastern Europe. What can we do, and, and what would you, how would you advise the incoming administration to coordinate with our allies in Europe to fight this? Uh, our coordination with our European partners tends to be pretty good. Our problem is the coordination within Europe itself between uh, different European partners. Uh, intelligence gathering is not a European, that is EU, competency. It's a national government one. And for that reason, and because of the nature of intelligence work, uh, many of the services are um, uh, not fully trusting in one another. In some ways, they're still more uh, in the Cold War era than we are at this point. Uh, Europe never had the 9-11 galvanizing experience that we did, and as a result, uh, it has never spent uh, the money on uh, law enforcement, on intelligence, uh, on border controls uh, that we have. Uh, I think that the new administration should engage vigorously with the Europeans uh, and push them hard, and this needs to be done at a very high level uh, to integrate uh, more effectively. I know the current administration has pushed this issue and has offered them various kinds of technical assistance so that they can integrate uh, their many different databases uh, more effectively. Um, but uh, I have to tell you, it's going to be rough sledding because Europe has an awful lot of issues uh, on, its, uh, on its agenda right now. Uh, but I do think that they need to do a better job and they really need to uh, increase the resources uh, devoted, to, uh, devoted to this problem. Let me just add, though, that the, perhaps the issue that is most dangerous of all for Europe right now is the migration one, not only because of um, the domestic problems it creates, but also because it is politically tearing apart the EU. So it seems to me that um, as part of a broader strategy to deal with this, uh, the United States should take a leadership role and try to help uh, Europe with the uh, migration crisis in terms of a global approach to dividing up uh, extremely needy people who have been the victims of a horrible war 
resettling them uh, around the globe as, as necessary, because until that's done, I fear we're going to be in crisis management for a very long time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, I, I have a statement that I'd like to include for the record without objection. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for your service and your testimony. You know, as the new year approaches, uh, we find ourselves 15 years removed from September 11th, 13 years from the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, five years from the turmoil of the Arab Spring, two years from Baghdadi's declaration of a caliphate, and conflict ranges across the Middle East and North Africa, horrible civil war in Syria, failing states in Libya and Yemen, sectarianism hardening. So we should not be surprised that violent extremism uh, flourishes in such conditions or that we are not immune from the blowback. Uh, and by the end of last year, more than uh, 31,000 people from at least 86 countries have migrated to ISIL-controlled lands, uh, testifying to the global appeal of uh, their extremist ideology. And, and it's, it's in that backdraft that I, I look at as, and I appreciate this hearing because it's a time of inflection and reflection uh, to think about what we have not done or have not achieved or what we have done well, but maybe what we should be doing as, uh, as well. And uh, several years ago, I made a speech well before this time that if we did not listen to the Arab street, we would, listen to, uh, we would live with the consequences of it. What did I mean by that? We had an overwhelming population, uh, incredibly young and incredibly poor, with no as aspirations of seeing anything in the future that would be better. Um, governance uh, and governments not uh, taking care of their own people and economic conditions that would not create the opportunity for people to uh, realize their hopes and dreams and aspirations. And therefore, you go uh, and listen to the suggestions that glorification comes in dying uh, and you get pieces of gold and other uh, enhancements as a result. And you actually, for those of us in the world, the Western world, uh, who live in democracies and whatnot, we find it incredibly hard to s that someone would succumb to that belief. But when you are desperate, it's amazing what can happen. And so my question is, Yes, we are doing, and I have supported all of the efforts to deal with the military, intelligence, and other elements, but that almost seems uh, ripe for a perpetual war. And so the question in my mind, shouldn't we be equally addressing the questions of the economic underpinnings that create masses to be disenfranchised to the point that their purposes can be perverted? Uh, how do, should we not be focusing more on governance as a way to move towards better economies, is that not also in our national interests and the national security of the United States? And should we not be more significantly in a broad-based, collaborative, uh, networked way, be dealing in the social media realm to counteract, and I think some of you, both of you have referred to that, but how do we do that more extensively, more collectively, more powerfully than we are doing right now? And lastly, so I'll put all three questions out there and then give the rest of the time for you to answer it. You know, I, I think, uh, Ambassador Benjamin, you said that um, terrorism and ISIS have their own political economy. And I would say to you and Mr. Zarate, well, how do we attack that political economy successfully? What tools, for example, 
can we give regular what what regulatory impediments could congress fix that would allow treasury and state to more effectively employ the tool of financial sanctions in our counterterrorism efforts towards that economy that you suggest they have so if you could comment on those three things i'd be appreciative one has graciously let me lead on this so on your on your broad point of the chaos in the in the broader middle east i'm in full agreement and i think that we face as i said in my testimony and it's in the in the written record in a very very long term challenge that will be very difficult to escape and we are talking about historical changes on a scale that have not been seen certainly since the the end of world war one the period of colonization the end of the caliphate and in many ways on a socioeconomic scale that are simply unprecedented and but if we don't start down that journey i admit that it's long yeah if we don't start down that journey then we are destined to ultimately live with the consequences of i fully agree i think that this is a moment from a global perspective that requires an enormous amount of american leadership and that is going to bring together the wealthy countries of the west the gulf and others to begin to incentivize good governance and and better economic institutions and arrangements in this region i think it's going to be extremely difficult but i think we should do it it's going to cost an awful lot of money and i guess i question whether or not in a period of america first we're prepared to do something like that but that is certainly that would certainly be my recommendation to any incoming administration senator you're always insightful and certainly ahead of the curve and i think you have been on this as well you can stop there no but and his time's up too never enough humor around it's the cuban-american thing I do think we have to realize that this is a generational uh, struggle, and it has all of the components that, that you've described and that, that Dan and I have put in our testimony. Um, and we have to realize that the nature has changed. To Senator Perdue's point, we are at war. It, it looks very different than past wars. It doesn't, it's not going to have a, a, a neat expiration date. And frankly, our European partners have realized over time that they're at war. The French uh, president and, and, and prime minister have, have talked about this in, in, in those terms. and so. We do have to realize that this is a war, that this is generational, and that you do have to employ all elements of national and international power. And in terms of governance, you're, you're absolutely right. There are short-term dimensions. You have to fill voids so that these groups don't take hold. You know, one of the things I worry about in Libya, for example, is that the, the new council, the Mujahideen Council in Derna, is now filled with al-Qaeda folks. Al-Qaeda's grown much smarter as to how they're re-emerging. Uh, they've relabeled themselves in Syria. Uh, as a way of uh, legitimizing themselves and distancing themselves from the al-Qaeda branch, very smartly. Right? So I worry that in the short term, if you don't fill the void, these, these actors are very smart and they'll adapt and they'll take advantage. In the long term, you have to have a solution to these questions of identity, of aspiration, and there's no question that uh, there is a crisis of identity in many parts of, of the Muslim world and with Muslim communities. Fortunately, I don't think that's taken hold in the United States, and one of the key elements of countering violent extremism in the homeland is making sure that the ideology never has real purchase or longevity in the homeland. 
And I think if we get to the point where that begins, we begin to look like Londanistan or Molenbeek, uh, we've got a real problem. Uh, we're not there by any stretch, and I think we've got to make sure that we never get there. Uh, but I couldn't agree more that the governance issues in the context of a movement that really is trying to reshape maps and history, this is a movement, uh, is trying to give identity and shape uh, in a very uh, convoluted and dangerous environment. And we've got to shape the environment. My time's expired, but if, if, if you can, in a separate setting, uh, give me ideas on regulatory changes that would make our financial uh, sanctions more effective, I'd appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, both of you, for being here today and sharing your expertise. Ambassador, just to, to follow up on something you made a comment to Senator Perdue about talking about the intelligence situation in uh, the EU and Europe in general, uh, it's pretty clear that when our focus shifted to the Middle East, terrorism in the Middle East, uh, that we started shifting out intel assets and resources uh, from Europe and obviously have not built up to what we were at uh, in the midst of the Cold War. Uh, what level are we in terms of appropriate intelligence responses, assets, and buildup in Europe today to understand the threat from Russia and others in, in the EU, in Europe in general? Well, I'm, I confess I don't think I'm entirely qualified to uh, answer that, not being from the uh, intelligence community. Uh, my concern was uh, less with um, the staffing uh, of, uh, of U.S. people uh, in, uh, in Europe or on the uh, on the uh, staffs in the various uh, agencies here than it was with uh, what we were getting from our liaison partners because liaison partnerships remain absolutely uh, vital. But I will say that you know one of the great challenges facing the intelligence community today, of course, is doing all of these different things. Right. And uh, you mentioned Russia, and it is really tough uh, when you are dealing with the potential of an imminent terrorist threat to also be uh, resourcing people who are looking at long-term trends uh, in Russia uh, as well. So, um, but would you agree that we can't simply rely on European nations to provide us both an intelligence look into Russia and the Middle East because you have a the North-South split? Well, we don't rely on on them for either of right. those things. Um, we rely on our own services for that, and for others who are in the region, we rely on liaison services in the Middle East heavily for uh, you know counterterrorism information uh, and. You know, every intelligence operation worth its salt relies on, um, uh, you know, a combination of its own uh, resources as well as those of partner services. Uh, no one can do it all by themselves. And quite frankly, in the Middle East, for example, you know, we just don't have the kind of personnel who could do that, that work. Um, we do, we are really challenged in this period. There's no question about it. Uh, thank you, Mr. Zarati. A couple questions for you. If you look at Southeast Asia, uh, we've talked a lot about the Middle East, but if you look at Southeast Asia, uh, 240 million people, a population, some of the largest uh, Muslim-majority countries in the world, 15% uh, of the Muslim population in terms of uh, Sunni Muslim population, excuse me, 40% Southeast Asia's overall population. Uh, what do you see happening right now in Southeast Asia that is of concern to U.S. interests in the region, how that growth of terrorism is occurring and the spread and the, the recruitment uh, taking place in Southeast Asia? Great question, Senator, because I think a few years ago, we certainly saw Southeast Asia as a success story in terms of our ability to contain the growth of the terrorism threat, even the, the growth of the ideology, even though it was still present and we saw attacks as we saw in Bali and other places in Southeast Asia. I think one of the dangerous things that we've seen, and part of this is the reanimation that ISIS has provided to the jihadi networks that have existed in the past, 
is a reanimation of operational cells in Southeast Asia that are tying back to uh, groups like ISIS or even Al-Qaeda. They're regenerating themselves after having been suppressed or deterred for some time. So I think that's the first order of battle, and you've seen attacks emerge. Secondly, I think the ideology um, has uh, had a bit of a renaissance, uh, unfortunately. You've seen rallies, for example, in Indonesia, mass rallies, where the violent Islamic extremist ideology seems to have grown a bit more popular. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that has implications politically. And that we've got to watch very carefully because to the extent that, uh, you know, Salafi politicians uh, begin to, to take, uh, take hold in Southeast Asia, that begins to affect policy and, and dynamics and our ability to work with them perhaps. Uh, finally, I think the diaspora communities are of concern. And so, for example, in Singapore, they've worried often about for example, the Bangladeshis that are radicalized, they've recently arrested a, a whole slew of individuals. Um, and so diaspora communities have, uh, have proven problematic at times in these, uh, in these areas. So those are three uh, concerns that I have looking at the environment currently. Yeah, and so to, to follow up on that question though, I mean, have we done enough in terms of our prioritization on counterterrorism assistance to them to help build their capabilities to monitor, to track, and to prevent uh, terrorism recruitment to know who's coming back in from Syria, uh, and do we have an overall high enough priority on counterterrorism efforts in Southeast Asia right now? Have we prioritized it decently enough? Yeah, I, I have to be honest. I haven't seen sort of current resource levels and, and the rest, but I would say that one of the successes in Southeast Asia that we can build on, and that has really been a success, is uh, the sharing of of labor around this intelligence work. I mean, one of, the, one of the great things in Southeast Asia is that you have a partner in the Five Eyes, uh, in the Australians, who are present, who have just as much, if not more, interest than we do in terms of watching what's happening. Uh, capable partners like the Singaporeans who are very committed to stability in the region. So these are all partners that are uh, devoting resources and working closely together and that we're trying to amplify. One word of caution, though, and this is where counterterrorism fits so importantly into our foreign policy, our partners have to want to work with us. And what we've seen currently uh, with the political uh, maneuvering in Manila, uh, with the removal potentially of uh, U.S. special forces in the south, uh, is troubling because that partnership has been incredibly important to diminishing the reach of Abu Sayyaf, uh, the Moral Islamic Liberation Front, uh, both of which have flirted with ISIS support. And so how we manage the foreign policy there begins to impact very directly what we can do with our partnership. Very good point. And, and I too would like to follow up with you a little bit on how we can be more effective in a different region of the world, and that's our sanctions in North Korea against individuals in North Korea. Victor Cha, uh, Ambassador Gluchi just issued a report talking about the importance of identifying individuals, uh, isolating them from the, the worldwide financial systems, and how we can be more effective in targeting uh, the ways that dollars are getting back into the North Korean nuclear uh, regime. So thank you. May I, may I just make one quick follow-up, Senator? Um, just to tie back to something that uh, Senator Cardin uh, was inquiring about before. You know, if we went back to 2003, 2004, uh, we probably, uh, if you polled a lot of uh, uh, counterterrorism experts, would have said that, that Southeast Asia was one of the true crisis regions and that we would worry about the fundamental stability of Indonesia. Um, one of our success stories, I would say, in the capacity building area has been in Indonesia. We are fortunate that it's a large and very vibrant democracy, and we had very, very uh, effective partners, particularly in the high-end policing area, but also in the judiciary there. And so I think that while there are 
you know, occasionally worrisome signs that we shouldn't uh, in any way be complacent about. Uh, this is a demonstration of what you can do uh, if you invest in a partner country. But I do think we have to be careful because in conversations with uh, the Singapore officials, they talk about the emergence of a hardline uh, element in Indonesia and recruitment, obviously, in Indonesia's national language and Malay language that, uh, that is increasing. And so uh, I agree with you, but we can't be complacent because there seems to be a, a larger element that's rising. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you for your kind comments earlier. It's, uh, I'm energized to be back with good colleagues here, and this hearing is a good explanation of why. Two things happened last week uh, during our Thanksgiving recess that I thought were interesting in close connection. Um, on the 24th of November, Thanksgiving Day, we had the first American combat death in Syria. Uh, Chief Petty Officer Scott Dayton, a Virginian from Woodbridge here in Northern Virginia, who was based out of Virginia Beach, who was a uh, bomb disposal expert was killed about 30 miles from Raqqa. Um, and second, on the 27th, th there were news stories about the President's decision to send to Congress a notice under the War Powers Resolution to basically say that he wants to use the 9-11 authorization passed in 2001 to expand activities against al-Shabaab in Somalia. Um, Senator Perdue talked about we're at war, and Senator Menendez talked about we're at perpetual war, and both of these instances occurring a couple of days from each other, combat death in Syria, in actions against an organization that didn't start until two years after the attacks of 9-11, expansion of military kinetic activity against al-Shabaab, which didn't exist until 2006 or 2007. I think it demonstrates the, the mutating scope of the war. I've raised questions about the legality of the war pursuant to the authorization, but setting aside those questions, we are 15 years after an authorization that is being used now. I think it's been used 37 times by Presidents Obama and, and Bush to justify kinetic action in 13 different nations. I do think it is a point of reflection and inflection when you bring in a new Congress, when you bring in a new administration to assess what's going on and continuing to trace back all of these kinetic activities in 13 different nations to the perpetrators of the 9-11 attack. I think we all recognize that there's some artifice there and it is a good moment to do that reflection or inflection. Um, each of you have testified, so the, the, the title here is the future of counterterrorism strategy, but each of you have testified to some degree that counterterrorism strategy has to be part of a larger foreign policy strategy. And one of the great things about this committee is we have a lot of people on the committee who really want to think about bigger picture strategic questions. So I would love it if each of you could talk about, you know, counterterrorism strategy as part of larger strategy. What would your advice to the committee be at this moment of inflection or to the, a new administration at the moment of inflection of how we ought to see counterterrorism strategy fitting into broader strategic questions? What are the broader strategic questions that we ought to be trying to answer to determine what the right counterterrorism counterterrorism strategy is. Senator, if I could just address the AUMF question, because you've been uh, leading on this for a long time and, and speaking about it, I think, rightly, because it's, a, it's an important legal uh, policy and, and moral question as to how we define the war and, and where we use targeted uh, killing and, um, and, and other tools. Um, I think a key question in the context of the AUMF, and then it relates to the broader uh, question of our future strategy, is how we define the prevention of the manifestation of this movement in, in its various forms. And, and you've articulated, you know, it has manifested around the world and especially where there is a lack of governance and vacuums of authority. 
um, at what point, how do we define prevention? And this administration has defined that in, in a variety of ways, but has redefined the sense of imminence to allow for the use of uh, targeted killings in a, in a sooner and a, in a more uh, prolific way. Uh, I happen to agree with that, but it's an important question because it goes to the heart of what the, the purpose of the AUMF is. Because the original AUMF in 2001 was not only related back to the 9-11 attacks, but also has a provision in it, as you know, with respect to prevention of future attacks from those uh, same groups. And so that question of prevention is critical. The second is labeling. How do you label these groups as they redefine themselves, as they morph, as they shift gears, and frankly, as they redefine the map itself, right? ISIS has erased the border between Iraq and Syria. And you look at the map, it's even hard to figure out what you're looking at sometimes. Um, and so those traditional authorities, the authorities that Dan used, for example, for labeling terrorist organizations, are in some ways outdated because the groups are adapting around this in a, in a dynamic way. So I just wanted to comment on that because I think your point is really important. Three things I think uh, long term for this committee. One is what's the nature of partnership? I think we've got great models in terms of how we create regional alliances to deal with the manifestation of these issues. In the Trans-Sahel with the French taking the lead, in East Africa with the Kenyans, African Union, uh, Ethiopians taking the lead, supporting Somalis. I think also this question of how we support sub-state actors uh, and alliances at the tribal, at the local level, the whole question of the Kurdish uh, support is critical. So how we define that is really important. Uh, and I think this committee has a, a, a key role to play in, in defining that. How we think about soft power and the use of tools. Again, we've talked about this in the context of countering violent extremism, but um, how we think about capacity building, how we think about long-term issues of of governance. And then finally, where do we see America playing a role in all of these uh, regions and conflicts? Um, you know, what is the, the American role in shaping the battlefield? We don't want to occupy, uh, of course, every place there's a conflict, and we don't want American service members uh, dying in, in these places. Uh, at the same time, we have to be present, and as I say in my testimony, the laws of physics apply, and American leadership is still critical. Um, and so what does that mean in a more difficult, diverse global counterterrorism environment, especially when we don't have reliable partners in places like Yemen, Libya, and Syria? Uh, I think it's illustrative that um, Juan and I are in very broad agreement because although th um, the issue of uh, terrorism remains a highly politicized one in the nation, I think that in the mainstream uh, on both sides of the aisle, there's broad agreement about uh, a lot of the things that are necessary. And I too would focus on um, this being a moment when we think hard about what it means to be engaged around the world uh, on a variety of different levels. I would, I would um, strongly agree with Juan, we need to um, redouble uh, and maybe redouble again our capacity building efforts. And not so that we create a lot of uh, empowered uh, militaries under dictatorships who th will then uh, repress their uh, populaces because that's a certain guarantee for um, radicalization, but rather that we need to have broad-based engagement, much greater engagement on the civilian side, uh, coupled with uh, you know insistence on compliance with the rule of law because that is how uh, uh, societies will um, you know, deal with the grievances in their midst that, that drive radicalization. Um, I think at the moment, we, you know, we spend an enormous amount of money on our military, and, and rightly so, and we're going to need to spend 
a good deal more money uh, on promoting good governance while also pr promoting those uh, institutions within the society that deal with terrorism at the tactical level, police, judiciary, uh, prisons, and of course the many different elements in the society that deal with countering uh, violent extremism. Uh, I also think that um, even in those countries that we don't need to invest in, we need a deeper engagement in terms of the partnerships uh, that, we, um, that we build. Uh, we need a great deal of help from the Europeans in dealing with uh, societies at risk in Africa, uh, in South Asia, in uh, any number of different places. And um, we have some fledgling institutions uh, to work with. Uh, for example, the Global Counterterrorism Forum, uh, the GSERF, which uh, is a, a sense an offspring of that, that, that uh, funds CVE programs around the world, but they are really small. And we are not going to get from here to there uh, if we continue to be uh, incremental in, in the smallest sense of the word. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Yes, sir. Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chair. Thank you for uh, being here today. I'm glad that we spent a, a good amount of time here talking about the the roots of extremism. We tend to spend most of our time talking about how to combat extremism after the fact. Um, uh, and I thank you for your comments on this. Um, you know, broadly, um, you know, there, there are a number of different dynamics at play when you think about um, how somebody becomes radicalized. There's, there's an economic dyna dynamic, there's a political dynamic, um, and there's a religious dynamic. And I think we're pretty good at talking about the political dynamic, which probably over the last 10 years we've exacerbated as a country. We're pretty good about talking about the economic dynamic, which we've probably underfunded. Um, but we're pretty terrible at talking about the religious dynamic. Um, and it's one that I would argue we can't afford to ignore any longer. Since 1979, there's been a, a fight on in the Middle East, expanded all across the globe as to uh, what the, the true nature of Islam is going to be in the last 10 years. Um, the Gulf states, the Saudis in particular, have put more and more money into a very conservative, very intolerant brand of the religion, which um, has formed the, 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 the basis, the foundation for these extremist groups. Often the Salafi textbooks are just taken word for word and turned into recruitment materials for some of these organizations. If you go to the Balkans today, it looks very different than it did 10 years ago. There are um, women being paid to wear head coverings. Uh, there are more mosques preaching that brand of Islam than ever before. And so I guess I just sort of pose this as a question to you. We, just, we, ha we've, we haven't talked about it at all here today. Uh, and yet without that religious dynamic, um, I don't know that we can tell the same story uh, about the radicalization of peoples throughout the world that we can today. So just just help us understand how we intersect with this discussion. Um, sh should we be talking about it? And if we, and if we should, um, how do we intersect here? I think it's a very uncomfortable topic for good reasons, right? The United States shouldn't be weighing in in a definitive sense as to what the true or right version of Islam is, but we can't ignore the fact that if we let the current dynamic play out as it is, it makes it really hard to solve this problem simply with political and economic responses. Senator, you hit the nail on the head in terms of the complexity of dealing with uh, this violent uh, Islamic extremist ideology and how it's manifested and embedded. Um, I will tell you that I um, spent countless hours trying to figure out 
how you deal with what is a, a movement that is uh, warping tenets of uh, one of the world's great religions uh, to reshape the sense of Muslim identity in the 21st century when the U.S. government is neither placed nor expert nor by the First Amendment uh, postured or, or legally uh, enabled to, to do anything in that realm. And this is why the analogies to the Cold War uh, battle ideologically is, uh, is a bit off. It's a little bit of apples and oranges. Uh, the Cold War analogy is, was two basically Western ideologies that were competing in the marketplace of, of politics and, and economics uh, and certainly in the battle place of ideas, but it was largely in a, in a Western uh, context and it certainly wasn't religious. Obviously the, the, the Soviets were trying to excise religion from, from their uh, societies, but um, this is very different because this, the animating feature of this movement is to try to pull on and shape that very religious identity. And so they try to use schools and texts to their advantage. You've seen ISIS uh, develop uh, schools to try to uh, brainwash uh, the, the next generation of, of radicals. They've, they've recruited women to try to create a sense of family and, and to create a sense of what uh, home life in an Islamic caliphate looks like, all with a sense that in their, in their mind, a true Muslim society, a true Muslim believer um, has to subscribe to their vision of the world, has to uh, subscribe to their uh, diktats. And so I couldn't agree more. That is a key, key issue. Now, but, let me but, that doesn't happen, but that doesn't happen in a vacuum. And I, th I think we often just yeah. focus on what ISIS is doing. Yeah. That doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens upon a foundation You're absolutely that, right. is, uh, that is funded in part by allies of the United States. Yeah, and, it, and it's not just on the, on the Sunni side either. It's something I mentioned in my testimony. It's also on the Shia side, right? So you mentioned 1979. It was the siege of, of Mecca. It was also the Iranian Revolution. Uh, and it was a key moment in the context of where this ideology and the, the, the clash of violent Islamic extremism was headed. And we're seeing the, the fruits of that now, especially with the proxy battles. And so you're absolutely right. This is why we have to rely so heavily on uh, Muslim uh, majority countries, credible voices, uh, not just clerics, but also uh, key, key influencers in Muslim communities. It's why in the report I mentioned from CSIS, we focus so heavily on funding and enabling non-governmental actors to actually have a central role in countering the ideology and offering alternatives. And as Dan said, being a, a part of intervention strategies in places like M Minneapolis or Boston or LA. Um, and so it actually forces you to rethink what the model is because it can't be that the US government is, uh, is absent, but it can't be that the US government is the voice. And so what does that then look like? It means you have to have partners that are non-traditional that begin to counter the ideology and shape what it means to be Muslim in the 21st century. And we can't be shy about it. Muslim Americans know that they're under assault. ISIS is trying to recruit Somali Americans. They're trying to get Muslim Americans to, to kill fellow citizens. They know they're under assault. Uh, they need US government help, but they also need uh, to be seen as enablers and not uh, necessarily as just victims or even as threats? It's a big issue, Senator. Um, and this is, in a sense, where I got on because uh, my first book was called The Age of Sacred Terror, and it was about the rise of uh, religious extremism, uh, in, uh, especially in Islam, but in, in all the major faiths where we have seen growing uh, uh, tendencies to violence. Um, I think one uh, gets it right. It, it's, a, it's a real problem for us to be a part of this 
dialogue. It's really in many ways a uh, dispute within Islam. We need to find those uh, partners with whom we can work who are, uh, in our view, promoting uh, a, a positive message. We have an enormous problem with uh, the uh, country or countries that have uh, put the most money into propagating uh, extremism because those are also uh, some of our very, very closest intelligence partners, and they provide us with tactical intelligence that saves lives. So it's a paradox, and uh, those of us who have tried to push this in the government have come up against hard barriers because of that uh, problem. I understand that we are short on time, so I'd be happy to take this up with you later. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Senator Kearns. Um, thank you. I'd like to thank the chairman, ranking, and the panel. You've given a tremendous testimony today. I, I know uh, my time's short as well as yours likely, so let me just follow up if I could. Uh, on the point you made, Mr. Zarate, on the, the recent CSIS report that you referenced, I'm very interested in your calling for the next administration to have an assistant to the president who would expressly be focused on building public-private partnerships and countering violent extremism goals. We've got Hollywood, we've got some of the best TV shows and online content in the world, in many ways American companies and content creators invented modern social media, which ISIS and others have turned to perverted ends. How would you imagine us most effectively using this new resource and role um, to engage in countering um, extremism here at home? And how can we better engage the more than three million American Muslims um, who, as you said, are in some ways really caught in the middle between this global uh, contest over the future identity of Islam and this concern by many Americans about our security at home, and how can we better reinforce um, that the integration of American Muslims is the best almost in any um, Western society outside the Muslim world? Thank you, Senator. What you've just described is precisely why you need someone, be it in the White House or in some other structure, that um, has not only the mandate but also the authority to coordinate what's happening internationally as well as domestically on these issues. I think one of the one of the challenges that we've seen in the space is that um, what we can do, say, and, and, and try to influence abroad uh, often can't get translated domestically for, for good legal reasons. Uh, but you do need somebody who's able to coordinate what's happening internationally, connecting the countering violent extremism mission to our broader policy goals um, to uh, what we're trying to do domestically, which is largely to enable uh, Muslim American communities to not only defend themselves against this ideology, but to enable them to be proactive uh, participants in dealing with uh, the threat. Uh, this idea of intervention models, community-led intervention models, is an important one. That has to be done with the help of the Department of Justice, FBI, Department of uh, Homeland Security, but that can't be set in isolation from what the State Department does or the intelligence community does. So the idea here is, here is you've got to have somebody that's concentrated on this issue concentrating on integrating it internally, and then, as you said, Senator, uh, figuring out what is the right way of leveraging the non-state elements of our power to actually then influence, and that is uh, technology companies, media companies, uh, the artistry field, uh, singers, songer, uh, songwriters, et cetera, uh, entrepreneurs, into a broader campaign to think about how we reshape this environment. You need somebody that's concentrated on that uh, full time, uh, and we often uh, we often don't see that. That's why that recommendation is in the report. Yeah, and, and I'd argue that uh, to the extent elected officials at the federal, state, and local level 
um, embrace and engage with and represent uh, the American Muslim community, the more likely we are to be successful. And to the extent there are proposals that uh, marginalize them or suggest that somehow they're not fully part of the American community, uh, I think that makes us less safe. Um, Mr. Benjamin, if I might, just we've spent an enormous amount of money um, trying to rebuild and stabilize countries like Iraq or Afghanistan uh, during and post-conflict. Um, you've talked about the importance of our being engaged uh, in countries that have been plagued by terrorism. What should we be doing now uh, to prepare for the reconstruction and rebuilding that's going to be required in a number of states, and not just those, but you know others, Somalia, Nigeria, um, that are really um, suffering a, a scourge of terrorism and where um, they are fragile uh, or failed? So if I can just begin by making one quick uh, note on the CVE issue, I, I, um, I would just point out that um, people have been trying to think about how to leverage American culture to uh, de-radicalize uh, or, or to fend off radicalization in lots of different contexts for a long time. Uh, you, uh, and while I think that the vast majority of the Muslim world probably enjoys a lot of the uh, products that we send them, uh, the sm very small number of people who are radicalized probably view it as right. uh, deeply offensive, pornographic, and the like. So this is, you know, a very difficult issue, and it's not clear to me that we can pick winners and losers um, as we can't in industrial policy, for example. Um, on um, uh, on the very important issue you raised, uh, there is an enormous amount of donor fatigue out there already, uh, and yet if there isn't investment in uh, uh, the areas of Iraq uh, that have been destroyed by ISIS and destroyed by the battle to retake it. If there isn't soon a ceasefire uh, in Yemen and uh, you know reconstruction there, uh, we will be paying a price for a long time because uh, terrorist groups uh, love these civil conflicts. They are the breeding grounds for the next generation of, uh, of extremists. And I would add, um, you know, we were talking about uh, trouble spots ahead before. I think Egypt is just an enormous question mark for the future because of the declining economy combined with repression and no voice for those, uh, for moderate uh, Muslims who to date don't Im believe in violence, but who find that they are uh, really excluded from the politics of their own country. Uh, I want to thank both of you. This has been a very informative hearing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. Um, Mr. Benjamin, uh, you made uh, reference to, in the context of this hearing, the uh, migration issues uh, regarding Europe. And, um, you know, I, I, I'd like to uh, drill down a little bit into that. I mean, it's, it's incredibly frustrating when you look at this. I mean, Europe will never be the same. I mean, uh, after what's happened over the last uh, 24 months, uh, Europe is never going to be the same, and, and for that matter, it isn't showing any signs of, uh, of letting up. Uh, it, you get these waves that come, and, uh, and uh, you know, years, it hasn't been that long ago when people would take up arms, and, uh, and there was an invasion, and they would repel them and send them back. That's not happening. Indeed, a good share of the population in Europe is very welcoming, and it's causing friction between the, between the countries there. And um, one of the things I found that, that was really interesting was... Uh, in addition to these huge numbers of people that are coming, uh, that that are indeed victims of war-torn countries and are are true refugees uh, in, in that sense, mixed in with that, the the people who are simply uh, opportunists, economic opportunists, are mixing themselves in there, um, and and not 
not intending to harm anyone or anything else. They're just wanting to do what we all want to do, and that is do better for our families and for ourselves. And uh, as a result of that, the NGOs I've talked to uh, who deal in this and, and who really want to help people who are refugees are very frustrated by the fact that they're getting this mixture. And the result of that is the numbers are just overwhelming. Uh, our minds can't, can't get around the kind of numbers we're talking about. Our, our human minds aren't designed to do that. You look around this room, if you try to think about the people in this room and then go to a thousand people or a million people or a billion people or the seven billion that are on the face of this earth, all of whom uh, have a view that uh, if things aren't good, they're going to go somewhere where, where it's better. I mean, this is a uh, this is something that uh, I, I don't know what you do. I mean, I hear the I hear the, the the Pollyanna kind of speeches about oh, what we need to do is stabilize all these countries. We need to get them governing. They need jobs and they need hope and they that that ain't happening, okay? And and there isn't there's no magical formula for that to happen. Certainly, the United States can't do this as, as much as is is is. Uh, egotistical as we are and think we can control these things, we can't. I mean, it's just huge. What, give me some hope here. Where, where does it, where's this thing going? But Mr. Benjamin, you raised the problem. You used to get, why don't you take a run at it first, and then we'll give Mr. Zardi a shot. Well, um, Senator, I think you've, uh, you've made me hopeless. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so there's no question that uh, large-scale migration from uh, either war-torn countries or underdeveloped countries is um, one of the greatest challenges uh, that we face. Um, and certainly this is tearing Europe apart because of the way that it has uh, translated into uh, the politics uh, of the continent. Um, so we're not talking about the, the terrorism dimension, which is also real because they don't have the kind of border controls that, that we have. Um, you know, I, I have some sympathy with your argument about, uh, about the challenges of um, economic migrants. Um, international law does uh, allow us to distinguish between these two, and we're going to have to continue to do so, otherwise states will simply be overwhelmed. Uh, and that's why it's so important to distinguish and find those who truly have uh, been forced to flee from their homes because of uh, conflict. Uh, I do think, though, coming back to what uh, we were talking about before with uh, Senator Kane and with Senator Murphy, um, this is why uh, deeper engagement with a lot of these uh, countries in concert with uh, Western Europe, which faces the most critical threat, but also with uh, wealthy countries in the Gulf and the Far East, there really has to be a concerted effort to uh, increase uh, development in these, in these places. Uh, we have to look at what we can do to uh, underwrite, um, you know, the availability of greater capital for uh, uh, for borrowing. Look, it, it's a it's a paradoxical situation because we we are uh, in the period of history that has seen the most extraordinary reduction in poverty globally uh, in history. You know, with something like 500 million people coming out of poverty in the last uh, uh, decade or two. So. Um, it is possible, but it is going to take a level of coordination among governments uh, that we have not achieved before. And I don't see any better way to do it. And unfortunately, we're going to have to continue to insist on the distinction between uh, refugees from conflict and refugees from economic privation. I appreciate your thoughts, Mr. Sarri. Senator, um, I don't want to add to the, uh, the sense of, of dread or, or pessimism, but you know, one other factor to consider is these migrant flows are creating um, 
new way stations and flows of people that are that are allowing a variety of groups, criminal groups, terrorist groups, to, to take advantage of these people. And so you've seen, for example, these way stations uh, appear in, for example, West Africa or, or North Africa, where human trafficking results uh, as, as a result of uh, the flow of people trying to head uh, into Europe. Uh, so you've got the immediate problem of just <laughs> pure exploitation of people and the threats that emerge from the, these flows. I would say, look, if, if we try to sort of solve everything at once, we're not going to solve anything. And so one, one way of thinking about this is mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we solve the immediate problem of distribution of refugees as they, as they flow out of especially the conflict zones, uh, and especially the, the conflicts are not going to be resolved, uh, but how do we manage the refugee camps so the refugee camps themselves don't become long-term uh, liabilities for the international community? Um, I think we've got to pay a lot of attention to Lebanon, to Turkey, to Jordan, which have already absorbed enormous uh, numbers of, of refugees and have tried to incorporate them. I think starting with what's right in front of us first, how do we deal with the refugee camps and the distribution currently is probably the good right first step. Uh, and it's not sort of solving all the, all the refugee problems around the world, but solving that uh, may be a, a good first step to, to getting in, uh, at some of these longer-term uh, problems. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I might add just on that note that uh, um, continuing to engage with Egypt, I mean, if Egypt were to fail, um, what we've seen as it relates to, to uh, the issues in Western Europe would be exacerbated multifold and that's an issue where our national interest uh, up against our national values uh, matters a great deal. But uh, anyway, with that, Senator Sheen. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you to both of our panelists for being here. I, I have to especially call out Ambassador Benjamin um, because he's from New Hampshire, and thank you for your leadership at the Dickey Center at Dartmouth. And I, I will tell you, especially for the good work that's going on there with students, I had an intern um, Morgan Sandhu, who helped conduct a national study on women's access to health care in Kosovo, and she was very impressive, so very much appreciate what you're doing there. Um, I just want to pick up uh, very quickly, because I hadn't, hadn't been um, thinking about it as a question, but on something you just said, Mr. Zwarte, and that is on the camps in Jordan and Lebanon and um, whether we're in Turkey and whether we're doing enough there to address those. And my assessment, based on everything that we've heard in this committee and other places, is that we are not, and that we ought to be doing much more there. Would you agree with that? I would. I, I think that's a, a source of, of real threat and instability for those countries, and obviously for the people that are living there. So I think that is a first order of, of concern has to be an area of focus for us. Um, I want to go back to some of. Uh, the questions that I understand Senator Cardin was raising about budgeting and what we fund and what we don't fund, especially given um, that particular issue. And um, I certainly agree with the assessment that I think um, you made, Ambassador Benjamin, and you probably agree with Mr. Zarte about our willingness to fund military counterterrorism operations, but not to fund on the governance, the civilian, the civil um, society aspect in a way that would help us so that we don't have to get to the military operations. And 
One of the things that we are about to do is to pass another continuing resolution, which will limit our ability to fund efforts over from at least from now until the end of March. And I'm hearing more and more people talking about a year-long continuing resolution, which is even more troubling. But can I ask you both to speak to what that does to our ability to make decisions um, about supporting efforts on counterterrorism, as in so many other areas. And Ambassador Benjamin, you want to go first? Well, you know, it certainly uh, uh, keeps us hamstrung uh, since uh, continuing resolutions uh, don't involve plus-ups. And I would just uh, note that, uh, as is in my written testimony, when we were talking about um, uh, capacity building and CVE, so countering violent extremism, which has been a, a major source of discussion in this hearing, um, is globally completely minuscule and, as a, and represents less than 10% of the State Department CT capacity building budget. And that capacity building budget is a tiny fraction of what we put into, uh, into our military capacity building. Now, obviously, military capacity building is going to be more expensive because sure. uh, of the hardware that's uh, involved and the, and the numbers of people. But, uh, you know, we are, we are stuck in the blocks here, and this is, uh, I think, disastrous for our national interests. And, um, you know, there, I know, has been skepticism uh, on the Hill at times about states' ability to uh, deliver these programs effectively, and I would say that both side, both ends of uh, uh, of Washington's uh, have some uh, justification for being upset. I do think that uh, too often uh, at state we look at throughput instead of sustained engagement that makes sure that the people who are trained stay in the places they are and that they continue to be uh, productive and uh, carry out the lessons that we have uh, uh, transferred to them or given them. Uh, at the same time, um, you know, we are in a, in a constant uh, feedback loop where uh, Congress is asking uh, frequently for metrics that show uh, progress in particular areas where it can't be measured. I mean, CVE is extraordinarily difficult, and we can't even get to the point where we can develop the program so we can figure out the metrics. So, you know, there's a vicious circle here, and I think it's... Uh, time that we recognize that things aren't getting better while we don't spend money. You know, it, it's just not getting better until we can innovate. And there needs to be more room for innovation, particularly in countering violent extremism and in capacity building. A lot of these fragile societies are not going to be uh, success stories because of exogenous factors. If your country collapses in a civil war, as happened in Yemen, then you're going to lose some money. And that's just tough to deal with. But we still have to give it, uh, it seems to me, a good try. Mr. Zarani, do you agree I, or I have agree. a different assessment? Senator, I, I think the, the other challenge with a continuing resolution is uh, is twofold. One is the inability to plan longer term, right? And that's that's incredibly debilitating when you're talking about these longer term problems. Uh, it's a problem for state, DOD, and others. Um, also, the question of flexibility. How are funds shifted? Right. Um, and, and this committee knows, and, and uh, certainly there's been prominent uh, former secretaries of defense who have been very open about the fact that they're they're more than willing to have funds shifted from their budget uh, to do precisely what we're talking about, which is to deal with issues of governance and uh, to shift funds, perhaps to the State Department or others, uh, to provide that kind of service, to shape the battlefield. You know, Special Operations Forces talk about that all the time. We've got to get ahead of the curb, curve and shape uh, the battlefield. And um, 
we're not able to do that with uh, constricted budgets, frankly. Uh, and final point, I think what we budget and what we're able to demonstrate, whether it's in the context of CVE governance or, or other uh, investments, also spurs others to give. And I think one of the things we've talked about in CVE is we've got to begin to plus up the funding in the private sector to then amplify what's happening in the private sector in terms of funding, as well as what's happening with other international partners. Same thing goes with refugees, et cetera. So I think it's, there's a demonstration effect to our commitment. And if we do it strategically, you can have a multiplier effect. Thank you. And, and the other point that you all didn't mention but is very clear is that usually it costs us more money when we do continuing resolutions. It doesn't save money, it costs more. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, Ambassador Benjamin, in your testimony, you say that working with Russia uh, on Syria's civil war would essentially mean joining Assad's campaign to militarily conquer all of those opposed to Assad. Uh, and I do agree with you that that scenario would lead to an escalation of the war, but I'd be interested in hearing your perspective uh, on how we might best work with Russia uh, and work with our own regional partners to best push parties to give up their maximalist uh, demands and agree to rational compromises. So thus far, the position the U.S. has taken is regime change is absolutely necessary. And Assad has said regime survival is absolutely necessary. So we're at a stalemate that to a certain extent does drive this war. You know, those are two non-negotiable uh, positions that ultimately lead to uh, ever uh, greater escalation. So I guess my question to you would be, um, where are the areas where you think we, that President-elect Trump, for example, could move uh, without compromising the ultimate goal of having uh, protection given to um, the Sunnis within that country. What, what, from your perspective, makes the most sense in terms of um, a new regime? And so I don't want to be in a world where President-elect Trump announces that he is giving up on regime change without then a strategy announced simultaneously that um, there is a plan in place that then gives guarantees to the protection of the rights of the majority within the country. So could you walk us through that? Uh, Senator, if, uh, if it were easy, <laughs> it, it would have been done. Um, I, uh, uh, you are absolutely right. We're at a stalemate, the stalemate, um, you know, to expand upon. Um, I think that we uh, would, uh, could imagine a deal in which we said that uh, uh, in return for ceasefire and cantonization, uh, that would preserve the security and the rights of the different uh, uh, groups in, in Syria, uh, that we would uh, be prepared to see, uh, you know, Assad stay in power for uh, a certain number of years before leaving the scene. And the Russians, I believe, have indicated that they're not prepared to accept even that because they want a strong Syrian state. It's one of their few uh, allies. It's now their foothold in the region. And uh, so they've been extremely uh, um, unhelpful and really recalcitrant. Uh, I hope that uh, if, um, if there is a warming uh, with Russia, that the new president can leverage his uh, influence 
uh, with uh, President Putin to move towards that direction. Of course, Secretary Kerry has tried to also find common ground with the Russians in terms of fighting uh, extremists. As we know right now, the Russians are uh, primarily just uh, targeting all regime opponents and not ISIS in particular. So um, uh, perhaps there is an opportunity for a new start to um, get towards that diplomatic solution uh, and common cause against uh, extremism that, that everyone has talked about. Um, Do you see any possibility of compromise coming from our Gulf partners? I think that it's going to be um, a very, very tricky situation. Um, and I worry that um, they will view uh, anything that um, stabilizes uh, the Assad regime as being um, an unintended signal to them to fund uh, Sunni extremists. And is, so is there a deal that could be struck that has um, the Iranians agreeing that they'll have no permanent military bases inside of um, uh, inside of Syria, uh, so that we could you know kind of back out both external forces in a in a way that could ultimately lead to some negotiated settlement among Syrians. You know, the Iranians have always uh, depicted their relationship with Syria and then ultimately with the Shia community in Lebanon as a, um, a matter of uh, the utmost national security for them. So I find it hard to imagine that they would uh, agree to that. Um, and if they did agree, whether they would abide by such an agreement. Um, so, um, you know, we're playing chess in, in seven dimensions right now. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cardin. I just wanted to, to take this time both to, to thank our witnesses, but also to make an observation, and I'm going to ask a couple questions for the record uh, that I would ask you to respond to. Uh, and that is, uh, we just yesterday got the National Defense Authorization Act uh, was filed. Uh, it's 3,000 plus pages. Um, and I asked the staff to go through it, Mr. Chairman, as to just give me an idea about what's in that bill that would normally come under the jurisdiction of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And they just gave me the bullets and a one-line summary that took 12, 12 single-spaced pages uh, of matters that we should be of interest of. And I want to compliment the chairman because we did uh, get a lot of our input into the National Defense Authorization Act. And I think we were successful in keeping a lot of stuff out of it, but also uh, important issues that our committee needs to move forward on were included in the bill. So I'm not complaining, but just observing. And uh, regardless of what hat you wear, Mr. Chairman, uh, in the next Congress, we need to pass a, uh, a State Department authorization I bill. So uh, I look forward to working with you as either chairman or in a different capacity to get a uh, State Department authorization bill done. But as pointed out, we have the authority over the authorization of use of military force, and we haven't talked much about the military aspects of fighting extreme uh, uh, violent uh, terrorism. Uh, terrorism um, extremism. So I'm going to ask some questions for the record as to how effective you believe our military operations have been, whether it's changed. We're now using drones a lot more. Is that working the way it should? We're using special forces. Uh, should we be doing more special forces? Should we be doing more ground troops? Because if this committee is going to be called upon to look at an authorization or use of military force, I think we have to get the best advice we can as to how the military can, in fact, deal 
uh, with, with violent extremism. I also am going to ask you a question for the record dealing, following up with Mr. Men Senator Menendez's point on uh, the financial sanction issues as to whether our laws are strong enough and whether our partner laws are strong enough to have a coordinated effort to try to dry up the financial support for terrorist organizations. So again, I thank you very much uh, for, your, for your testimony, and uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I look forward to continuing this discussion. Thank you, and I'm going to ask a couple of questions that weren't asked. Don't feel like anyone has to stay. Do you want to? Okay, okay. Um, let me just, uh, if I could, the, these are more just organizational in nature. I know we have a State Department Office of the Coordinator for Counterterrorism to the Bureau of Counterterrorism, which in itself sounds like very bureaucratic, just a name. I'm sure that it's not, of course. But could you tell us a little bit about the uh, how you feel the effectiveness of that has been? And just to speed things along so we can get to Senator Shaheen's additional questions, uh, there's also been established the Global Engagement Center to coordinate counterterror messaging that many of our Gulf, Gulf allies have created on their own counter-messaging counter organizations. How are those, uh, how are those in effect uh, working together? If both of you could respond, I'd appreciate it. Uh, Senator, on the uh, matter of uh, state bureaucracy, so um, I'm, your recitation of, um, of uh, my former title, um, the, there is now, and I think it is appropriate, that there is a counterterrorism bureau. Bureaus are where the uh, central business of the State Department is done, and I believe that Secretary Clinton uh, did the right thing in creating that uh, bureau. The, um, I believe the uh, legislation that created originally the Office of the Coordinator for Counterterrorism, uh, I'm told that it was Secretary Schultz who insisted that the, that person have uh, the rank of ambassador at large so that uh, partner nations would take uh, that envoy seriously. Uh, at the time that the uh, Bureau was upgraded from an office within the, uh, a, a coordinator within the office of the secretary uh, to uh, being uh, a Bureau, um, I believe that the State Department had um, a, a list of different uh, bureaus that needed assistant secretaries and um, some of them were more controversial than others, and therefore the uh, CT Bureau, which um, I guess everyone thought uh, I had an august enough title, uh, was not put on the list to get and become an AS, uh, to become an Assistant Secretary. Um, I'm agnostic as to which uh, title is a better one for achieving the goals that um, uh, that Secretary Schultz, uh, I think, wisely uh, but sought out. But has it been effective? I think it's made a big difference. I think that uh, creating the Bureau uh, has made a big difference. The problems that I think dog our uh, civilian side engagement have uh, much more to do with overall funding of uh, the State Department than with uh, uh, the bureaucracy of, of uh, the Department itself. So uh, I support that and I think it's also put the Department uh, on a trajectory towards building uh, really the kind of personnel, the kind of size, staff that, that is, is required. So I think it was a, a wise move. And the global messaging component? So um, uh, I will just uh, sort of underscore my uh, uh, initial concern in, in that was in the testimony. Um, 
when I was at the State Department, we created the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications that was supposed to be uh, an interagency uh, body, was an interagency body. I thought it was doing interesting uh, work. Uh, very difficult, again, to find metrics to know whether or not it was effective. It ran afoul of all kinds of uh, bureaucratic infighting. It has since been subsumed into the GEC. Uh, I am simply skeptical having been involved in this issue now for uh, uh, 15, well, for as long as it's been an issue, uh, that uh, spending as much time and effort on messaging as we do is the right way to go. I am not persuaded that um, uh, an Emirati uh, messaging hub is going to be received by people uh, who are at risk of radicalization any more effectively necessarily than our messaging for the simple reason that they consider those governments to be apostate much as they view us to be um, infidel. So um, I strongly believe that uh, the future in CVE is in community-based efforts that intervene with people who are at risk. Again, we cannot see the, the entire field, um, but we should recognize that um, we are going to have a hard time getting through a lot of these uh, to a lot of these people. There is a, a kind of cognitive closeness, especially as we see recruitment ages go down and down and down. Uh, kids are not going to be listening to the kinds of uh, messaging we put out more often than not. So I, um, that's my view after way too many years of having uh, thought about this one. You're not too jaded, though. No. Um, just very quickly, Mr. Chairman, on the question about internal uh, State Department uh, bureaucratics, um, I think the biggest question is how these issues get ultimately integrated, right? And I think the challenge with the bureaucracy within the State Department is how do the issues of counterterrorism get integrated with the funding capacity building uh, from the INL shop, which has uh, a vast bulk of those resources in terms of partner capacity building? How does it relate to uh, post-conflict reconstruction and that office? How does this fit into regional strategies? So I think, you know, Dan did great work here, and, and the former ambassadors with whom I've had the honor to work uh, did their best, no doubt. But the question is, how does this all get integrated in a way that then is effective as a State Department and then as a country? Uh, I don't think any titles or, you know, org charts will necessarily solve that other than top-level uh, focus on that integration. Uh, you, can, you can have all the org ch charts you want. If the leadership of the State Department isn't focused on integrating these issues in a strategic way, it doesn't matter. Um, on the Global Engagement Center, um, I agree and disagree with Dan a bit. I think we, we're in a mode where we have to flood the zone. We've got we've to flood the zone in terms of messaging. We've got to figure out ways of countering various manifestations of the threat. We haven't talked about this much, but the, the, the fact that liberal bloggers are getting uh, attacked uh, viciously in Bangladesh is a manifestation of this threat. The fact that sacred sites have been desecrated and populations uh, extracted from those areas from Afghanistan to the Middle East, Syria, Iraq, that's a manifestation of the ideology. Um, what the Global Engagement Center doesn't do is think imaginatively about how we counter the ideology as it manifests in all its forms, not just in the latest tweet, but in how it's manifesting in ways that are affecting societies and communities. That's really lacking in the center. And the other thing that's lacking, and this is where I agree with Dan, um, this can't be a, a government-centric, heavy model. Uh, and that's kind of where we've gone with the Global Engagement Center. 
I think we've got to find ways of empowering all of those organic dimensions in the environment. And they're there. Ex-jihadis that are trying to counter the message. Uh, the women uh, without borders uh, efforts that are trying to counter uh, the recruitment of women and families. Um, all sorts of, uh, of efforts. Uh, you've got some staff here working in, in East Africa uh, trying to work with the Kenyans on some of these organic uh, issues. There's a lot out there that can be funded and scaled. The Global Engagement Center, I think, is trying to do some of that, but it's very state-centric. And I think we've got to move away from that model uh, if we're going to be effective. Thank you. Senator Shane. Um, well, thank you for asking that question because that was one of my questions. And, and I think we've heard people testify before this committee exactly to the points that both of you were making, that um, messaging is a critical part of the countering violent extremism. But it's more effective when it's done not by um, the U.S. government in the way that we did to, during the Cold War, but more as a, a grassroots initiative to fund, to support networks that are responding in ways that are effective. Um, I think the challenge is how do we do that better? Um, but I, I want to ask a question about what's happening in Syria right now, because as I have listened to the news reports over the last couple of days, it's, it appears that um, Aleppo is about to fall to the Assad forces and that that um, will then have some effect on all of those rebel groups that have been fighting. Um, some of the reports that I've seen suggest that they're not interested in um, reconciling with the regime. They don't trust it, and so they're looking at other um, other extremist organizations that they can join. So if that happens, if Aleppo falls and um, the Assad forces, can, along with Russia, continue to make gains, what does that do to the terrorist groups that are currently operating in Syria? What does it do to ISIL? How does that affect what, we're, what we have been seeing? in Syria and the Middle East with respect to terrorist organizations? Uh, I think, frankly, it strengthens the hand of uh, these extremist organizations for a couple of reasons, Senator. Uh, one, they become the, the groups of last resort uh, to fight against uh, the Syrians, uh, the Iranians, the Russians. Uh, and they we've seen this with al-Qaeda already, rebranding itself in a way, as I mentioned earlier, uh, to serve in that function, to be a, a very kind of local shock troop, uh, to, to continue to defend uh, territory and populations. The second thing is, I think we've got to recognize that, that the question of regime change in Syria has a real impact on counterterrorism. Uh, Assad is a driver for radicalization. Uh, we, we talk a lot about, for example, Guantanamo uh, or words and campaigns serving as drivers. There's no more important driver for radicalization uh, in the Middle East, or the complications that Dan was mentioning earlier in terms of Sunni Arab states being willing to support extremist groups, then Assad being in power. And so we can't, we can't divorce those two issues. Uh, and I think there's been a sense that the U.S. has actually given up on that idea, despite what our policy has, has been in rhetoric, that we really haven't done much to do that, and in fact have restricted the hands of our allies on the ground to effectuate that change. Uh, and I think, uh, finally, what it does is it, it, it uh, disempowers the United States to, be, to shape the environment. The other troubling news, if the news is correct, uh, we heard today, you know, the Russians and the Turks are negotiating with the rebels. Right. 
uh, absent any USA and absent any uh, US input. It's exactly what we don't want. We don't want the US denuded of its power, its inability to shape the environment. And frankly, uh, then our partners on the ground who have sacrificed and fought on our behalf or with us, uh, taking real lessons as to uh, whom they can rely on as an ally. We want our allies on the ground to know that they can rely on us. We want our enemies to fear us. Uh, and I'm afraid that what's happened in Syria is, is going in all the wrong directions. Uh, I, I uh, agree with uh, Juan's assessment. And uh, I would, um, and I do think that this will um, have a powerful impact on the attractiveness of these, of any Sunni groups that are fighting in that region. Um, but to take it one step further, I, I just want to underscore how the sectarian divide in the region is the, and it's sectarian on the one hand, and a sort of great power rivalry or regional power rivalry between Iran and, and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Arabs more broadly. Uh, on the other hand, it is the defining feature of the region now, and uh, it will continue to feed the flames of extremism uh, for a long time to come. Uh, I don't believe that the West has had a serious conversation about whether or not there is an off-ramp. Uh, I don't think we've had a serious conversation with any of these partners. I think it's taking uh, the United States in directions that we should be very, very wary about, for example, our role in Yemen right now. Um, and uh, this is, again, one of those um, big historical forces that we need to uh, think very hard about uh, how we grapple with it. Um, I couldn't agree more, and, and let me just say, one of the ways, one of the reasons that Assad has been able to be successful is because of the atrocities that he and the Russians and the Iranians have committed against the Syrian people, and as that the West has been far too quiet about those atrocities, and we should we should have acted before now, and it is heartbreaking to see what has happened in Syria. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Couldn't agree more. Um, thank you both. Um, ben and I were talking earlier about what great witnesses y'all are. We usually like to have controversial hearings, but y'all agree so much. That's been difficult, but uh, it is something that I think our country agrees generally speaking about, and that is uh, countering terror, and we thank you both for your expertise and experiences you've had and the knowledge you've shared with us today. We're going to leave the record open, if we could, till uh, the close of business Monday. Y'all have done this before. People will send in written questions, and if you could respond fairly quickly, knowing you have other jobs to do, we appreciate it. But uh, y'all have been great witnesses. We thank you for both for your service to our country, and uh, with that, the meeting's adjourned.